sorts of tea about what's going on inside Washington, D.C., what regulators and lawmakers are working on and thinking about, and how you and your institution should be evaluating potential risk areas and areas of opportunity. My name is Ann Petros, Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at NAFQ, and today I am joined by Todd Zawicki, who is Professor of Law at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School and uh, a research fellow of the Law and Economics Center and former chair of the CFPB's Task Force on Federal Consumer Financial Law. And uh, Todd is an expert on consumer credit and lending and consumer protection law. So today we will be discussing interchange and recently proposed legislation on that topic, the Credit Card Competition Act. So thank you, Todd, for joining me today. Thanks, Anne. Great to be here. All right. Well, let's jump into this interesting topic and, and you know, something that our members have been really fired up about because uh, we've, we've all seen the impacts of the Durbin Amendment to the Dodd-Frank Act. So, you know, could you just briefly walk us through the history of the interchange issue, starting with a passage of the, the Durbin Amendment? And, you know, why was this a concern to begin with? And, and why have merchants men so effective in their messaging on this issue yeah so like a typical professor you said to start with the durbin amendment but i'll start before the durbin amendment uh, <laughs> as we are wont to do um basically uh in the run-up to the uh, durbin amendment there had been a lot of discussion about regulating interchange fees um the uh, merchants had been really pushing uh to to do that um uh, just basically because they didn't want to pay for interchange fees, right? And so it came back to the idea of the great growth in debit cards um, beginning um, in the 2000s uh, um, with um, as checks got phased out and debit cards got uh, phased in. Obviously, that um, was good for merchants to not have to deal with bounce checks and the time of checks. But the difference is, is that... Um, that checks cleared apart and they basically had to pay for uh, for receiving debit cards, which they <clears throat> didn't really want to do. Uh, and so prior to the Durban Amendment, the idea would have been to do very limited interventions in the market, uh, for example, allowing merchants to collectively negotiate interchange fees and that sort of thing. And out of the blue, um, in a midnight amendment to Dodd-Frank, um, Senator Durbin came forward with this idea of price controls on debit cards. Um, and, orig and originally, I think it was going um, to be a billion dollars, and that covered too many banks. So they just made it up on the fly and made it $10 billion. Uh, and, um, and the original Durbin Amendment did two things, which is first, it imposed price controls on debit cards, which you can go back to. Second thing was, was a provision involving routing um, of uh, debit card transactions that required at least two unaffiliated networks on the same card. Um, the Durbin Amendment um, uh, um, uh, uh, price controls dealt with only banks above a certain size, uh, 10 billion. The, uh, the, the multiple routing requirements 
covered any uh, any uh, transaction. So the deal at the time that was promised, of course, to people like your members was, well, this won't affect you. We're just going after the big banks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the city banks and the chases and those guys. Um, and um, as I think all your members probably know, that turned out not to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but what it did do over time was it reduced the debit card um, fees Overall, um, at the time, it had been promised in some sense this would be passed on to consumers and lower retail prices, which has not happened. Um, and we could come back to the evidence on that. But um, this has turned out to be a really big windfall for the um, for merchants, um, especially the big merchants, uh, you know, the Walmarts, the Amazons, the all these, retailers, the big box yeah. retailers um, who've made a huge amount of money uh, off of this and um, haven't pass it on in any noticeable way. Um, and um, and now they're back for more, uh, which is they want to take the ideas of the Durbin Amendment and extend it to credit cards, um, which were left untouched as part of the original Durbin Amendment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and why is this appealing to to lawmakers? What's <clears throat> what's the impetus to to evaluate this on the credit card side? Yeah, and so what's interesting about it is if you look back at the the, the debates of the original Durbin Amendment, um, the reason it was applied to debit cards and not credit cards was because they recognized at the time there's credit risk. Um, and to some extent, what they just decided, kind of typical Washington uh, uh, thinking, which is it was easier to basically engage in central planning and price controls of debit cards than of credit cards. So they said, mm. yeah, we'll just apply it to debit cards, right? Um, but they recognized at the time that credit cards have costs associated with them, notably credit risk that de debit cards don't have. And so to try to micromanage that in the way they did with debit cards, they thought would be too hard. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it turned out to be too hard for debit cards, but they recognized at the time that that would be impossible for credit cards. Um, nevertheless, the politics of it is are, are, are very good uh, for a lot of politicians. And it, I think it basically comes down to this, which is that banks, um, especially large banks, um, and this has really just been demagogued as uh, going after Wall Street type th thing, right? Uh, Big banks are, you know, headquartered in New York and San Francisco and places like that, where merchants are all around the country. Um, and so from the perspective of politicians, it's always easy to attack uh, the big banks um, uh, and um, to hand things out to, to merchants. And what merchants have found, of course, is that the big box retailers um, have gotten huge benefits from this, but the evidence is pretty clear that any benefit to small retailers has been trivial, um, and many, many small retailers actually saw higher costs um, for their card processing fees after the Durbin Amendment went into effect. Mm -hmm. And and why haven't you know the the consumers seen any cost savings? You know, as was promised originally. Yeah, and and. Um, I, I predicted this uh, in my scholarship before it went into effect. And there's a lot of studies uh, on this, which is that um, what we know is that pretty much all of the revenue losses for financial uh, uh, companies for by banks have been passed through to, uh, to consumers. We've got multiple 
um, empirical studies now that find that 60, 70, 80, 90, even 90 percent of the revenue losses that were suffered by banks um, as a result of these debit card price controls were passed on to consumers. Um, and what's really vicious about this is it was really passed on most harshly to low-income consumers, mm -hmm. uh, which is what banks did originally to try to deal with this was um, the ones who were affected, raised the, um, raised the um, mandatory minimums, uh, monthly fees required to, uh, to get free checking. So multiple times, I think one study is went from about $250 a month of an average balance to $1,400 a month, for example. Right now, most middle class people, certainly all the politicians that didn't notice that, but who did the people who young people, um, people who uh, don't have a lot of money. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing they did was um, that um, after they took away free checking, they doubled uh, the monthly uh, charges roughly for um, <clears throat> what you would have to pay to get um, to get a to have a, an account uh, at these banks. And so <clears throat> the data that we report. And some of our research on this is prior to the Durban Amendment going into effect, as well as the overdraft uh, rules uh, that, uh, mm -hmm. that, were, that also had an effect around that same time, Fed overdraft rules, about 76% of bank accounts in the United States were uh, free, eligible for free checking. Now it's about 38%. Uh, basically cut in half, uh, annual fees doubled. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, monthly uh, maintenance fees doubled and the amount necessary in order to have um, uh, have free checking increase substantially. And so that really hammered low-income people and it's created a barrier for young people um, to actually get bank accounts in the first place. Um, and um, on the other side of the equation, what you see is that very little of this, uh, there was a study by the Fed, st another study of uh, gas stations by uh, Muka Harloff and uh, Sarin. And what they find is if if 60 or 70% of the cost of banks got passed on, 10 or 20% in most got passed on by, uh, by retailers. And that depended a lot on the industry, mm -hmm. the market, uh, that sort of thing. The Fed study uh, found maybe somewhere around the same thing. And the dynamics are pretty straightforward, which is large chunks of revenue losses tend to get passed on, which is what banks that get a big lump sum loss, where these little trivial sort of savings on each potential uh, um, transactions that merchants had tend not to get, this is a general rule of economics, tend not to get uh, um, passed on. And the second is um, the market for financial services is just more competitive uh, generally than it is for retailers. And so people just don't shop, they just shop differently from when they, when they go and open a bank account and the like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but for, you know, products and, and services, including, you know, credit, I mean, margins are, are pretty tight. And so from a, a business perspective, I mean, you may not really have much of an option aside to, aside from passing on some of these fees. And, and now, you know, what we've seen, like you pointed out in, you know, the, the big bank industry um, or, you know, part of that sector of the financial services industry is that 
fees have increased yep. and you've got, you know, a lot more reliance on overdraft. We've got the CFPB looking into fees and, and overdraft fees are included in that sort of junk fee right. <laughs> label, which we uh, vehemently disagree with. Yeah. We don't think there are junk fees in the financial services right. industry, but um, that aside, you know, a lot of, a lot of credit unions do offer um, free, you know, checking accounts right. and, and other, um, you know, fee free accounts and, and services, but it is difficult, especially for smaller institutions. So, you know, now that we see the introduction of the Credit Card Competition Act, you know, what issue is this bill trying to resolve on the credit card? side do you think it's going to have the intended effect of course not uh, <laughs> but uh, but to your, your to your first point i think it's worth stressing that point which is that when it comes to things like this the the big banks you know the big money center too big to fail banks they they can always roll with the punches right they've right. got so many different revenue streams um and it's and it's pretty clear if you look at their their business model since dodd frank which is i think one estimate back around the time dodd frank was passed that anybody on with less than a hundred thousand dollars in assets <clears throat> is a, a, a losing account for big banks right so the view of big banks now is pretty much um pay the fee don't pay the fee if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, we don't really need you anyway, right? right. Where it's like, we're, 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 they just don't do that, right? They're basically designed to cater to high wealth, high income, uh, high income people where they can sell a lot of services, right? They could sell mortgages, they could sell car loans, they could sell uh, home equity loans, but they also sell investment services, insurance and all this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, so you can squeeze a little bit of revenue here so it gets rid of the low margin customers for them anyway, and then they just make it up over here. And so that's right. the same thing that's going to happen with overdraft. But is is everybody listening to this knows that's not the model of a credit union, right? That's not the model of a community right. bank. Much more limited line of products, much more different margins. And so, you know, to benefit of consumers, credit unions and a lot of community banks have continued to compete by offering service and uh, um and uh free checking right uh, um but every time you start squeezing these revenue lines mm -hmm. it it squeezes out those competitive advantages uh, uh particularly that competitive advantage of uh of free checking it makes it more and more difficult to sustain that um and makes kind of destroys the comparative advantage that they have against the uh against the uh against the big banks um and so why are they why are they back at this uh well the first is as we all know credit um credit interchange fees are higher that's for good reason mm -hmm. right uh which is you got to deal with the float you got to deal with the credit risk right you know got to deal with billing cycles all those sorts of things that all costs money right and so they're always going to be higher um Credit cards are used for online transactions, uh, which have much higher uh, fraud rates, right? And so uh, card not present transactions. So interchange fees have to be higher to deal with uh, card not present uh, uh, transactions, right? Um, and so there's good reasons why credit card pricing is more complicated, more difficult, and will be higher than it is for debit cards. But merchants just don't want to pay it. Um, number one. Number two, what we did see is that after the Durban Amendment went into effect, big banks did respond by trying to shift customers away from debit to credit. And they did that pretty successfully, especially mm. with higher income customers, which is 
They stopped offering rewards on debit cards because of the Durbin Amendment. Well, they could still offer rewards on credit cards, right? And so there was a shift, um, and the data is pretty clear on this. The shift was to transactional users, right? People who pay off their bill every at the end of every month rather than revolvers, uh, to use basically to, to push people towards that, uh, to increase credit card usage where they could still get uh, rewards. And so one of the unintended consequences of the Durban Amendment was to increase use of credit uh, by, by people. And now, of course, the response to that is, well, rather than fixing the original problem, let's go in and create a new problem <laughs> by, <laughs> by using the same stupid rules on the, uh, on the credit uh, right. Uh, market. <laughs> yeah. And, and because maybe, you know, some, some lower income individuals have have had a you know difficult time getting access to credit you know you see products like buy now pay later right. loans pop up and and those are are largely unregulated i mean we know of course the cfpb is is looking into uh regulating that space but uh, those can can pose serious consumer risks yeah in in and it's not like we have to wonder what's going to happen, right? We have so much evidence from, from the effect of the Durban Amendment that it increases bank fees and causes people to lose bank accounts, mm-hmm. period, right? Here's the thing that's so absurd about this was every country in the world that has uh, done something like the Durban Amendment has had exactly the same effect, um, where what it does is it increases bank fees uh, for, for consumers um, and uh, uh, in, in the like, right? And so mm-hmm. you do it to credit cards. I'll t- I can tell you exactly what's going to happen right now if they succeed in what they want to do with credit cards. The reason they want to extend it to credit cards is to reduce interchange fees, right? And we could talk about the mechanism by which that is done. Right. We know what happens after that, which is number one, rewards are going to become less generous or maybe go away. Number two, we're going to see the, the return of, uh, of annual fees on, uh, on credit cards uh, because right now it's interchange fees that allow credit card issuers to be able to cover the cost of non-revolvers, right? Um, that's how they, you know, that basically the interchange framework replaced the old annual fee framework. Now, that is a huge boon for consumers, the way credit cards are, are offered right now. Why is that? First, annual fees are regressive. So just like the Durban Amendment is regressive and harms lower income people the most, annual fees are regressive. You have to pay a $40 annual fee, whether you have a $2,000 or $20,000 credit limit, that's going to hurt lower income people. The second thing is it's going to stifle competition, which is, you know, I have four credit cards in my wallet. Um, The reason is I've got four cards with no annual fee. You start imposing an annual fee, and what are you going to end up with? People are going to maybe have one credit card. They're going to look to switch cards a lot less frequently. The overall effect on consumers is going to be terrible in terms of uh, reducing choice, increasing cost, and reducing competition. Um, And um, there are certain segments of the industry uh, who benefit from that. And I'll tell you right now, it's not the small credit unions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, this would have the exact opposite effect, you know, of of the problem that's trying to solve for and and would in fact reduce competition in in the long run. And really, you know, these, these routing provisions are a backdoor price cap. That's exactly what they're intended to be. And so basically what's happened now is they've gone back and 
So you're saying the routing provisions, they've revisited the second half of the Durbin Amendment was this this uh, routing requirements. They managed to avoid a, a lot of the damage from that, the way mm -hmm. the Fed kind of bailed out that rule the first time by basically requiring one uh, pin network and one signature network, right? But it still, as uh, everybody listening to this knows, it still ended up costing money and driving, driving down uh, uh, rates, um, especially on signature. Um, is what the evidence indicates, and now they 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 want to extend that, and it's it's not it's not like they're trying to hide it, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're obviously their their whole point is to try to reduce interchange fees, to reduce the cost uh, that it costs them to uh, to, uh, to to take it. Um, originally, another reason why they passed on credit the first time around was it was also sort of a transparent money grab by the big um, retailers at the time who uh, wanted to be, who offer their own credit card, uh, their own instant, you know, in-house in credit right. card, mm -hmm. like the target uh, red card and things like that. Sure. Right. So there are all kinds of things in the original Durbin amendment that were very slick uh, uh, or, or a different, different laws, but there were things in the air at the time. They're very slick, like, you know, like involving maximum caps on, uh, on how much you could charge and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me if partly what's going on here is the big players um, wanting to basically steer people to their own uh, credit uh, credit systems uh, with respect to this, but the overall effect um, is to um, to uh, um, try to drive down interchange fees, drive down the cost um, to take it, and um, uh, and they'll just pocket it just like they did with uh, with the Durbin Amendment. Sure. Wow. And you know, can you talk about the exemption um, in the bill that's, you know, currently set at, you know, $100 billion in assets, only those above that threshold would actually be subject to it. And, and do you think that this will have a, you know, spillover effect? It's not just going to be those institutions above yeah. the $100 billion in, in assets that are actually going to be impacted, but much like with the Durbin Amendment, this will... Uh, proliferate into the rest of of the ecosystem that seems to be what that that's what i would expect uh which is to say that uh, um that we that we know the durban amendment was promised as leaving the um uh, smaller institutions unscathed um but that was at 10 billion right mm -hmm. um but over time it's just hard uh some might say impossible to maintain this sort of this two-tiered system of uh, system of pricing, right? Um, and so I think over time it'll reduce revenues. I think another big problem um, there, there. I know also I also know that certain uh, that a lot of smaller institutions partner with larger institutions. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have good data on that, but um, but to the extent that they're partnering with larger institutions that are covered to to offer their credit cards, um, that will. Um, that will uh, um, impact it as well. But I think an additional concern is, uh, for me, is about uh, security um, and the impact on consumers of data security. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's, there, there's reasons why these networks look the way they do, right? Uh, there's a reason why consumers want to use Visa and MasterCard branded 
uh, cards, for example, and not China Union Known and pay. trusted. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, um, you know, when, when consumers cho choose something because they know it and trust it, that's a, a, a triumph of competition, not a failure of competition, sure. right? And so the whole idea here seems to be to come up with a scheme to keep consumers from using Visa and MasterCard um, in particular. Um, right, to break up this Amex duopoly. Yeah, right, exactly. And so what does that mean? That either means like China Union Pay, um, somebody like that, right? They've got this kind of weird thing about national security, which maybe would cover that. Or some of these other networks, which are perfectly fine networks. I mean, you know, I don't think there's anything insecure about a lot of uh, pin networks, but a lot of pin networks that have been wanting to get into this uh, this space, right, um, may have the same level of security um, as Visa and MasterCard. And there's no reason to think they don't, but there's no reason to assume they do mm -hmm. because, you know, one of the things we know about Visa and MasterCard and the big ones, uh, um, and the way this is written, you've got to have, you can have Visa or MasterCard and the other, uh, the other routing network cannot be mm. whatever the other of those two is, right? So you couldn't have Visa and MasterCard. So the whole idea is to try to route these transactions through different networks. And one of the things that does um, is it fragments the data ecosystem. Um, and one of the reasons why Visa and MasterCard are so good on security is because they are truly on the cutting edge of artificial intelligence um, and big data analysis, right, to flag these transactions. The more you fragment payments um, across multiple different networks, you lose, um, you lose information. Uh, sure. by, by doing that, right? right? And so that's a cost that I don't think they've really focused on if you, you know, fragment, and that's not even counting whatever, you know, inherent limits uh, that these um, various networks uh, might, might otherwise have if, if they have them. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I wonder, you know, how exactly that cost can be quantified. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, certainly it, you know, no longer having the consolidation of, of data, um, right. I could see that having some, some negative consequences. Yeah. And the other thing that is just so brain dead, to put it bluntly about this, is um, they, they, this is a fundamentally different market from the debit card market. Now, right. if we go back to Durban, there is no evidence, zero evidence, that there was a competitive failure in the debit card network. Right. There's no reason to think that uh, um, certainly no reason to think that uh, um, that there was some antitrust problem or a lack of competition that led to uh, um, to interchange fees being incorrectly priced in some way, um, at least intuitively, even though there was no theoretical or empirical basis for it. Intuitively, there was at least some logic there, which is most consumers carry one debit card. Right, you, you, whatever your primary bank is, that's your debit card, and so the idea right. would be, all right, well, we'll put two networks on that debit card. That is not how the credit card market works, right? Most consumers, I'm not unusual, have three or four credit cards mm -hmm. at least, right? And we know the average consumer has three or four credit cards. Competition doesn't occur at the point of sale, which is how it does with the debit card writing. Competition for consumers. Deals is at this state, uh, at the place at which you decide what credit card you're going to have and which one you're going to have in your wallet, 
right? And so, you know, I know exactly which of my credit cards are offering the 5% additional cashback right, right. bonuses there are other in any factors quarter. factors that lead you to or, make decisions as to which credit yeah, cards you take out. That That's right. And so the fact that you've got multiple credit cards, you can decide at any time to use one of those credit cards because you've got them with you for online or in person or whatever, as opposed to debit cards. And so, what they don't under, so what they've done is there's clearly no failure of competition in credit cards for consumers is the point, mm -hmm. which is if consumers have multiple credit cards in their wallet, what's the problem, right? And so right. what they're doing here is just layering on an additional level of complexity and confusion to, to make what make consumers choose again when they mm -hmm. pull out their, you know, their chase or their whatever credit card they've got to choose again which whether they want visa or some other network i mean what's what's the point they've already chosen if they've got a visa card and a mastercard in their wallet they've chosen which one they want to use and are consumers so. really going to understand that choice at the point of sale right yeah it just adds a a layer of complexity and confusion mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. to that's completely unnecessary, um, it, it seems to me, and potentially harmful uh, in the effect of, uh, of reducing fees artificially um, and, as I said, potentially imperiling uh, consumer on um, uh, consumer uh, um, data security. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you mentioned the, the Federal Reserve's rule and the um, on the two unaffiliated, you know, networks for debit cards. And obviously that rule has been, you know, finalized. And one of the issues that, that came up as, you know, we were submitting our, our comments and, and working with other trade associations to submit comments is this question of, of fraud. Yeah. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on, on the debit card side and and what you know you've seen in in the data if anything yeah there's a couple interesting things that i think are worth pointing out one thing that was interesting to me um just about debit generally is for a long time one of the arguments that were made was that um signature debit isn't a real thing right mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 it was a that that was something they made up basically charge higher interchange fees well, one thing I'd always wondered about, and now that turns out to be true, is the, the latest data indicates that while fraud rates are higher on signature debit than on PIN debit, that's there, there's two things to know about that. The first is that's because signature debit is accepted in a lot of places where PIN simply isn't, right? So you can pay online with signature debit and either can't or won't. I mean, I'm not putting my tin, PIN number in Absolutely not. website, <laughs> right? So, so the, the areas in which fraud or uh, misuse tend to be highest are where people are use mm -hmm. signature for, for, for good reasons. The second thing is, is that the, the consumers are very wary about um, entering about, about things involving their PIN. And what we've discovered is that even though PIN rates are lower, the average loss to a consumer when there's a PIN breach is much, much higher. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they got your PIN, right? Mm -hmm. So now they're not just making transactions. They can also go to the ATM and, you know, clear out your bank account right. and that sort of thing. And so, um, and so I think, you know, uh, so, so the, the whole sort of debit card fraud thing, I think, is, um, is, is very complicated. And again, this is an area in which 
there's an arms race going on, as we all know, right? There's an arms race between the good guys and the bad guys. Uh, and the mafia is, you know, not doing all the things that they did back in The Godfather. Now the mafia is a bunch of, you know, Russian computer hackers uh, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to steal and misuse uh, all these, uh, all these uh, card, uh, um, all this card uh, uh, information. Um, I think it's a, a marvelous, a, a miracle how um, the payments industry has developed anti-fraud uh, type type things. I remember what's absurd is just a few years ago, I was actually, there was a, they were actually trying to, if you recall this, I'm sure you might remember, they, that a bunch of uh, regulators, uh, primarily Democratic attorneys general and some people in, in Congress, wanted to require all cards to have PIN on them, mm -hmm. right? When right. they rolled out chip, they're like, well, that's not enough, we gotta have PIN. It's like. Could you imagine if we were still living in a world where you had to enter a pin because somebody thought at the time that would uh, that that would make sense? Right? We and moved away from that, right? and now That's we're moving nonsense. away from we're moving towards contactless payments, which are even right. you know these encrypted contactless payments, which are brilliant in terms mm -hmm. of the speed and the efficiency. I mean, this is such an innovative market, um, and as as I say, uh, nobody goes to the grocery store to experience the checkout experience, right? They, <laughs> That's every, right. That's the worst part. The of merchants, it. <laughs> the consumers, and you know the uh, financial institutions all want things to be smooth, fast, seamless, and secure. And we have a lot of incentives. There's mm -hmm. a lot of incentives in place for that to happen. Um, and pretty much all laws like this do is gum that up, yeah. right? And just create stickiness, um, all because some powerful special interest groups um, think they can make some money off of it. Mm -hmm. um, and consumers just won't know what hit them. Mm. Yeah, uh, you know, another frustration with the the Fed's rule is is the short implement you know implementation period, and so our members are going to have to figure this out pretty quickly, and yeah. and it's going to be a, a sizable you know one time cost to, to reissue cards. So that is a, a bit frustrating. Right. Um, right. No, it is. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a that is a cost. Um, and I don't know. I guess these guys in Washington think that. Just these things fall out of the sky and nobody has to pay for them. So, yeah, yeah if only. Um, yeah. So, in your opinion, what's the best way to promote a healthy competitive credit card market? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. Uh, um, um, and I think you know, you know, I worked at the Federal Trade Commission, and as you said, I worked at CFPB. I've studied this from all different angles, and. Um, you know, the first question regulators should always ask is, is there a market failure here? Is there a competition or consumer protection problem here that needs to be solved? And if so, do we have a solution for that'll work and for which the benefits will exceed the, uh, the cost? Um, this is a particularly frustrating um, area to work on because there's no, there's no, competition failure here, even though they mm -hmm. keep saying that, right? Um, and in, in the models, I wrote a paper back in, way back in 2011 when this was first uh, heating up uh, around that time, um, it may have even been before that, where I kind of went through all this different regulatory stuff. Uh, um, I guess it was 2009, actually, um, to try to figure out how all these, these markets work. And um, what's fascinating about cards is it's an example of what is called a two-sided market. 
Um, and the Supreme Court actually, you may recall, had a case a few years ago, Amex versus Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, where they talked about the antitrust implications of a two-sided market. And what's fascinating about two-sided markets is um, the platform exists to bring together two sides of the platform to sync up with each other. So the classic example is a newspaper, right? People think a newspaper is there to deliver news. No, uh, <laughs> that's one of the ways they do it. But what a newspaper actually does is links advertisers with consumers, right? And they do that by providing news that consumers find interesting, yep. uh, right? And so what we see in that is all kind of cross subsidies, right? Which is uh, that consumers pay less than the marginal cost of producing a newspaper because the advertisers subsidize the the consumers. Um, And what have we seen over time is advertising revenues fall. The price of a newspaper has gone up uh, to consumers because they've gotten rid of the subsidies. A search engine is an example of a two-sided market. I can do unlimited searches all day in my office on Google Right. That doesn't mean Google is free. That just means the advertisers subsidize me doing it. And the advertisers are happy to subsidize mm-hmm. me doing it because more searches means more likelihood that I'm going to find it and click on it. Right. And it's a very right. efficient model because they can, you know, gather all that data and use targeted advertising. Exactly, exactly what you're looking and, for. And so, so we get free, we get free services, right? And so we see these in a lot of markets. These these platforms. And payments is an, an example of this. And we've come to uh, we've come to understand this. And what we know about this is two-sided markets are really complicated. That's the first thing. That that trying to apply and study these two-sided markets where you've got these interaction effects between the two sides of the markets is really hard. Second, the pricing can be very complicated. So it's not uncommon to have zero or even negative prices on one side of the market, subsidized by the other side of the market. But as long as both sides of the market are both winning, right, both make out better, mm-hmm then everybody's happy. And that's clearly the case with credit cards, which is merchants complain about how much they pay, but why do they take credit cards? The reason is because it's still a heck of a lot less expensive than running their own in-house credit operation, right? And it's that simple. Prior to ubiquitous acceptance of Visa, MasterCard, and the like, every department store had to run their own credit uh, system, which meant billing. And particularly what they didn't like was collections, Right. right, where you're trying to get somebody to shop at your store, and at the same time, you're threatening to sue them because they won't pay up. Mm-hmm. And so, credit card networks are more efficient. They they relieve that problem of collections. The merchants get paid immediately. They just don't want to pay for it. Uh, is simply what it comes down to. Um, and they clearly get more. Um, they they get more from this than they pay, or they wouldn't do it. Um, and they could always change their mind and open their own in-house credit operation if they didn't like it, right? Sure. And the fact that they don't shows, uh, I think, that they're getting uh, getting a benefit from it. And so that's the long-winded like way of what should we do about competition? Nothing. <laughs> uh, that this is an incredibly competitive yeah. market. Uh, um, it's an incredibly innovative, competitive market. And there is no obvious um, market failure that I can see here that requires anything except um, leaving it alone um, to to allow everybody to sort it out. Excellent. Well, any any last uh, or parting thoughts before we we close out our episode here? Yeah, and and I think the thing for for listeners um, when they're c- communicating with elected representatives and and that sort of thing, 
um, I think it's really important to 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 make the point that that this will harm consumers. Right. Right. This will harm consumers. We know that from the Durbin Amendment, but also to make the point that uh, um, that that this. That that when you that, that this also harms small banks and by and credit unions by harming small banks and credit unions you are um, just benefiting the large banks right the whole point of Dodd Frank this is the, one of the bitter ironies of all this the whole point of Dodd Frank was to get rid of too big to fail right mm -hmm. um, to get rid of the power of the big banks I've traveled the country for the ten plus years of Dodd Frank and pulled thousands of people at lectures like literally thousands, like probably 5,000 people. I have yet to find a single person who thinks that Dodd-Frank got rid of too big to fail, <laughs> right? And that includes congressional staffers, that includes members right. of Congress, that includes members of the executive branch, right? Tim Geithner, Jim, uh, Jeb Henserling, and Elizabeth Alt Warren all agree that Dodd-Frank didn't get rid of too big to fail, right? What did Dodd-Frank do? Dodd-Frank has promoted consolidation in every single financial services industry because of the regulatory costs and everything else. 100%. And this is just more in that direction of further entrenching the power, further consolidating the, uh, the industry and further hampering the small competitors who provide such an important uh, choice uh, for, for consumers. It's a different business model. They serve markets that the big banks don't serve. They serve consumers that the big banks don't uh, uh, serve, such as credit unions. Um, and um, and if and if and, and I just think that message needs to be heard. That central planning and claiming, well, you guys won't be affected by this because of this particular thing. Um, there's just no reason to believe that's true, uh, um, based on on experience, and I think that message needs to continue to be amplified um, if we want to keep a vibrant um, and robust competitive financial uh, consumer financial system that gives consumers a variety of choices and doesn't kind of push them all into a one size fits all mm -hmm. business models that a lot of people don't like and don't need and don't want. Yeah. That, that's an excellent point. I mean, we've certainly seen it in the credit union industry. You know, since the passage of Dodd Frank, there has been immense consolidation. The industry has shrunk in half, right. essentially. Um, and so that that's a staggering figure, and and that's not just unique to the the you know credit union uh, industry. Um, and consumers certainly are likely to to face you know higher costs overall and and reduce options for products and services with this sort of legislation so we've been uh actively advocating against it yes. <laughs> well thank you so much todd for your time today and that does it for today's episode of the cup if you enjoy watching the cup please subscribe hit the like button or turn your alert notifications on so you get notified of new episode releases and leave us a review tell us how we are doing and we're open to any suggestions for future episodes and with that thanks again todd and until next time